0: This is a verbal recording of a recently published paper, The Social Construction of Teacher and Learner Identities in Medicine and Surgery. It's read by the lead author Peter Cantillon, on behalf of the co-authors Willem de Grave and Tim Dornan. I'll start with the abstract. Introduction. There are growing concerns about the quality and consistency of postgraduate clinical education. In response, Faculty Development for Clinical Teachers has improved formal aspects, such as the assessment of performance, but informal work-based teaching and learning have proved intractable. This problem has exposed a lack of research into how clinical teaching and learning are shaped by their cultural contexts. This paper explores the relationship between teacher and learner identity, educational practice, and the workplace educational cultures of two major specialties internal medicine, and surgery. The methods. This was a secondary analysis of a large data set comprising field notes, participant interviews, images, and video recordings gathered in an ethnographic study. The lead author embedded himself in four clinical teams, two surgical and two medical, in two different hospitals. The authors undertook a critical reanalysis of the observational dataset using dialogism and figured worlds theory to identify how teachers and postgraduate learners figured and authored their professional identities in the specialty-specific cultural worlds of surgery and internal medicine. Results. Surgery and internal medicine privileged different ways of being, knowing, and talking in formal and informal settings where trainees authored themselves as capable practitioners. The discourse of surgical education constructed proximal coaching relationships in which trainees placed themselves at reputational risk in a closely observed embodied practice. Internal medicine, on the other hand, constructed more distal educational relationships in which trainees negotiated abstract representations of patients' presentations which aligned to a greater or lesser degree with their supervisor's representations. Conclusions. Our research suggests that clinical education and the identity positions available to teachers and learners were strongly influenced by the cultural worlds of individual specialties. Attempting to change work-based learning should be founded on situated knowledge of specialty-specific clinical practice cultures and should be done in collaboration with the people who work there, the clinicians. Main paper, Introduction. The widespread adoption of competency-based curriculums in postgraduate medical education has greatly increased the expectations and responsibilities of clinical teachers. In response, there has been an exponential increase in faculty development. Despite faculty development efforts to professionalise clinical education, there remain worrying inconsistencies in the quality of clinical supervision and the adjudication of learners. Moreover there are growing concerns that trainees are not being given sufficient opportunities to participate meaningfully in practice. It is clear that the educational effects of credentialing teachers and providing standalone teaching skills workshops have neither transferred well into practice nor proved sustainable. This disappointing impact has been attributed to cultural and organisational factors and features of clinical workplaces that undermine teacher development. These problems are compounded by a lack of empirical research into how social and cultural contexts shape the practices of teaching and learning. The relationship between teaching, learning and cultural context aligns better with sociocultural theory than the cognitive models that underpin much faculty development scholarship. From a sociocultural perspective, Clinical education is a process of participating in the shared activities of institutions such as hospitals and clinical teams and becoming a person whose identity is forged in particular cultural contexts. There has been little research into how identity formation, clinical supervision and the influence of cultural context relate to one another. Self-report studies have shown how postgraduate trainees master shared practices rules of thumb, and embodied understandings. But such methodologies have been largely insensitive to the implicit effects of cultural context. Observational studies have shown how graduate learners seek legitimacy in clinical teams by reproducing socially sanctioned token behaviours, but not how social and cultural contexts shape the roles of teachers and learners. In response, we launched a programme of research to develop a situated understanding of the relationship between clinical teaching, learning, and social context. Our purpose was to develop a theoretical framework that it would inform future contextually sensitive faculty development initiatives. And an ethnography of four hospital teams, two internal medicine and two surgical, in two separate teaching hospitals over a period of one year, from 2016 to 2017, yielded a rich data set. We used Goffman's dramaturgical theory to explore the relationship between teacher and learner identity, educational practice, and ways of talking and acting that typify participation in clinical teams. This showed that clinical teachers embodied rather than articulated their team's implicit curriculum of norms and expectations. Trainees responded by reproducing teachers' embodied understanding and standards to create impressions of themselves as capable team participants. This methodology proved insensitive, however, to the shaping effect of specialty-specific culture on teaching and learning. The aim of this paper was to reanalyze the observational data using a theoretical framework, figured worlds, to identify how the contrasting cultures of two major specialties, surgery and internal medicine, influence teachers and learners' identity formation. The research question was as follows. How do the identities of teachers and learners interplay with one another in the cultural worlds of specialty clinical teams where the linked practices of working, learning and teaching are situated? Theoretical framework, figured worlds Is a critical theory that provides conceptual and analytical tools to examine the relationships between identity formation and culture. A figured or cultural world is a socio-historical context, for example, membership of a clinical team, that affords particular experiences, ways of talking and acting, and social possibilities. Identity within figured worlds is not possessed, it is dynamic. And evolving, constructed by speech and other symbolic acts, finding form in the interactions between individuals and the cultural worlds that they live and work in. Drawing on Bakhtin's theory of dialogism, Figured Worlds assumes that speech and other symbolic acts give individuals agency to self-author identities in these cultural worlds. In Figured Worlds, The term figure refers to the identity possibilities that are embodied by, for example, teachers from whom residents learn. The term figuring superficially resembles role modeling but differs in how it places greater emphasis on learners' agency in forging their own identities rather than just assimilating roles. In this account, when we use the term modeling, we are referring specifically to the actions of teachers in demonstrating skills or articulating their thinking for learners. We also differentiate between modeling and coaching, where coaching describes when teachers observe learners' performances and provide feedback to support growth and development. Figured Worlds acknowledges that high-level institutional and socio-historical discourses which G terms as big D discourses, structure cultural worlds, creating social positions and making those positions more or less available to people with different identities. Importantly, figured worlds also allow scholars to reveal how the contents of everyday speech, so-called little D discourse, gives people agency to resist the structuring effect of the big D discourses, In this way, the everyday use of small-D discourse constructs and reconstructs big-D discourse. In this study, we use Figured Worlds theories linguistic concepts to make sense of our ethnographic observations of cultural worlds in action. For example, the educational rituals, particular to the cultures of surgery and internal medicine, and everyday speech, small-D discourse, which give individual agency to navigate cultural worlds. Methods. This article reports a secondary analysis of an ethnography carried out to explore how clinical education is actualized in the day-to-day working and learning environments of a surgical and an internal medicine clinical team in each of two separate teaching hospitals in Ireland. The hospitals were of similar size covering largely urban populations in two adjacent Irish cities. We selected surgery and internal medicine because they represent practices within the same profession whose socio-historical origins are very different. Although the sampling strategy was chosen for dramaturgical research, it was well suited also to exploring the influence of cultural factors on identity formation in medical education. A gatekeeper in each hospital distributed a leaflet giving information about the study amongst all the clinical teams. The lead author, Peter Cantillon, then spoke about the study at Medical and Surgical Grand Rounds, where most teams were represented. He invited offers to participate and included teams in the order they volunteered. Those included were typical of clinical team units in Ireland, in that they were composed of one or more lead consultant specialists, one or two senior specialist registrars or senior residents and two to four junior trainees or junior residents. Research research Ethics Approval and Protection of Participant Identity The ethnographic design and its associated data collection methods were approved by the Research Ethics Committee of the two participating teaching hospitals. All participating team members received an information sheet about the research, including the intention to publish the results. All provided written consent to participate in the research. Any patients or healthcare staff who were incidentally included in video or image data received an information sheet with researchers' contact details, which they were asked to read before giving verbal consent to be included in the data set. If such consent was not forthcoming, we deleted the relevant data segments. Data collection. The lead author, Peter Cantillon, embedded himself as a marginal participant observer. That is, he observed and at times partook in activity in each team for between 12 and 16 weeks each over the years 2016 to 2017. He attended each team's activities for approximately two days each week, including ward rounds, multidisciplinary team meetings, surgical theatre, coffee breaks, formal educational events such as grand rounds. He collected data in multiple formats, including contemporaneous field notes, digital images, video recordings of outpatient encounters, and exit interviews with participants. At the end of each day of observation, Peter Cantillon developed his contemporaneous field notes into rich descriptions of what he had observed. Exit, semi-structured interviews, and teacher-learner interactions captured on video were transcribed verbatim and pseudonymized. Likenesses of individuals captured in digital images and video stills were disguised and rendered unidentifiable using ACVIS sketch software. Data analysis, our orientation towards Figured worlds empowered us to assume that analysing language would show how cultural worlds privileged particular ways of talking and behaving, and would influence how individuals could form identities within those worlds. Two important figured worlds concepts provided analytical tools with explanatory power. Positioning refers to how other people's speech grants or withholds identity possibilities. Self-authoring refers to how individuals incorporate other people's speech into their own speech acts to negotiate, create, or contest positions. The data set included field notes from 640 hours of observation, transcripts of 34 exit interviews with participating team members, 16 surgical and 18 internal medicine, 30 hours of outpatient video recordings and digital images provided by the -the in-the-field photography. NVivo 12 software from QSR International 2018 was used to facilitate the analysis, which moved iteratively between original data and representations of the data, using memoing techniques to capture emerging interpretations. Peter Cantillon led the analysis and wrote the memos. Tim Dornan and Willem de Grave met regularly with Peter Cantillon to review the interpretation. The first phase of analysis, which treated the surgical and internal medicine data sets as two distinct figured worlds, systematically sought key components of figured worlds, which we list in Table 1. In practice, this meant reading and rereading field notes, interviews, and video transcripts to identify meaningful acts figure types such as teachers in particular specialties, culturally significant acts and other genres, as listed in Table 1, which I will read in a minute. We regarded interpretive inferences as valid when linguistic evidence, symbols or behaviours present in video or digital images provided empirical support. We use this evidence to examine how participants' communicative actions orchestrated their identity positions. The second phase of analysis identified patterns of identity work, that is the negotiation of identity positions in social contexts that characterise the different worlds of surgery and internal medicine. We used um, field notes, observations, excerpts of spoken language and video transcripts to synthesise a narrative summary of the cultural worlds of surgery and internal medicine. Table 1 summarizes key components of figured words that we used in the analysis. Such components included meaningful acts, which are self-evident behaviors, rituals, and events. And an example of this in surgical and internal team activities, internal medicine, were things like prototypical events, such as case presentations, ward rounds, and case conferences. Another key component were figures, Figures are persons who fulfill prototypical roles. Typically, these might be teachers acting as coaches or as models for self directed, or indeed a self directed learner. Another component was that of artifacts. And these were regularly encountered resources within the cultural worlds of medicine and surgery that have strong cultural meanings. So, in surgery, for example, a key artifact was the patient's body. Whereas in internal medicine, a key artefact was the cognitive representations that doctors held in their minds of patients. Lastly, a key component was that of figured language. And figured language represents the typical linguistic and narrative strategies that doctors in these teams and cultures use. In practice, these were the regular ways of talking and narrating that typified surgical and internal medicine communication. Rigour and reflexivity. Sensitised by figured worlds, we used rich description, crystallisation and multivocality to move from raw data to interpretation. We agreed interpretations between two people who had independently read the data. We strengthened the trustworthiness of our interpretation by seeking evidence from more than one source, for example field note and interview data repeated over time. We applied the Figured World's concept of multivocality by seeking similarities and differences between different individual participants and different teams in the same discipline. We sought participants' opinions about the validity of our interpretation in two ways. First, by agreeing interpretations with special to specific groups of participants, and secondly, by showing individual participants samples of original data and our interpretations Of those original data. These validity negotiations refined our interpretations and conclusions. In keeping with best ethnographic practice we used our insider Peter Cantillon is a general practitioner and Tim Dornan is a hospital specialist and our outsider perspective from William de Grave who is an educational psychologist to scrutinize otherwise taken for granted aspects of language and practice. Peter Cantillon also kept a reflexive diary to ensure that the relationship between personal perspectives, observations and interpretations was available for scrutiny. Results. Becoming a surgeon or a physician was shaped by culturally valued ways of knowing and acting peculiar to the cultural worlds of surgery and internal medicine and was inextricably linked to their specialty specific practices core artefacts and practices in surgery. The core practice of surgery was identifying and correcting anatomical manifestations of disease. Proximal coaching relationships between teachers and the protégé learners centred on the dominant cultural artefact, the patient's body. The surgical learning culture was more confrontational than the culture of internal medicine. Surgeons observed trainees closely and scrutinise their practice, particularly in theatre. For example, one resident interview said,
1: Oh, it's shocking the level of scrutiny because when you scrub in, you're conscious of your surroundings. When you start off, it's the way you hold stuff, the way your surgeon's looking at you, your senior colleagues are looking at you, anaesthetists are looking at you and forming opinions about you, and the nurses are too.
0: Core artifacts and practices in internal medicine. In internal medicine, the most important cultural artifacts were patients' clinical records and cognitive representations of their presentations as communicated and negotiated between team members. Here, the core practice was creating and manipulating plausible abstract representations of how patients had presented. These representations informed teacher-learner relationships, which were more distal than relationships in surgery. Given the largely opaque, cognitive nature of internal medicine practice, teachers framed teaching as verbalising their thinking and acting in ways that trainees could recognise and reproduce. When talking about his habit of repeatedly checking during case presentations whether trainees had explored their patients' social and historical histories, for example, one consultant explained,
1: What I'm hoping to transmit is that these are important questions you need to ask.
0: That was a consultant from the first hospital. Internal medicine physicians talk, emphasize the need for learners to be self-directed and independent. For example, a consultant conceptualized postgraduate clinical education on the wards as follows.
1: They, the trainees, need to be taking responsibility. You have to let them learn by themselves. They need to learn and show learning themselves.
0: The emphasis In internal medicine, on modelling, thinking and encouraging trainees to learn self-directedly contrasted strongly with the intense observation and coaching of trainees' practice which characterised surgical education, comparing the cultural worlds of surgical and internal medicine teams. So in this, I'm going to read from table two, which is a very large table. And in that table, we illustrate ways of knowing, seeing, talking and being that were particularly valued in the cultural worlds of surgery and internal medicine. Lead clinicians figured and articulated the dispositions and capabilities shown in table two, which trainees used to position themselves as capable participants in their respective specialties. Table two, the cultural backdrop for figuring and self-authoring in internal medicine and surgical teams. In this table, we describe valued ways of knowing, seeing, talking, um, being prudent, um, and acting in resilient and self-directed ways, particular to medical and surgical teams. Starting with knowing. In the cultural world of surgical teams, surgeons valued categorical knowing. That is, knowledge founded on fundamental anatomical and pathophysiological principles. For example, a consultant figures surgical knowing for medical students.
1: If the patient has an infection in solid tissue, it's an abscess. A similar infection in the bloodstream is septicemia.
0: Categorical knowing helps surgeons to limit their scope of practice and constitute what surgeons uh, termed a foundational understanding that underpinned each surgeon's basis for knowing and acting. Foundational understandings inform surgical intuition a rapidly available form of knowing that enables surgeons to act in situations of incomplete information or urgency. Whereas exchanges between surgeons were often robust, they were careful not to undermine each other's foundational understandings. For example, a surgical supervisor figures etiquette in mutual positioning among surgical colleagues. The
1: surgeon develops an understanding Surgeon applies that understanding and their results are linked to that particular understanding. That understanding becomes their foundation. If you were to disrupt that understanding or that foundation, then you are disrupting a very core process in them.
0: We now look at how knowing is described in the cultural world of internal medicine teams. internal medicine, knowing was valued in terms of its quantity, that is, knowing lots, its quality that is the logical and evidence-based quality of that knowing and its applicability, that is the ability of the phys- physician to be flexible in the implementation of that knowledge. For example, a medical consultant uses a role model narrative to figure internal medicine knowing.
1: He just seemed to know everything. He was just a genius. He knew everything but every speciality. He would hold the grand rounds every week and bring in these really exotic, complicated cases that had great clinical signs and he was a real master of general medicine.
0: Knowing, like an internal medicine doctor, enabled physicians to create coherent abstract representations of complex patient presentations that informed subsequent diagnostic, therapeutic and prognostic decisions. Abstract representations of patient presentations were judged in terms of their internal consistency, their logic and their alignment with the existing evidence base.
1: I would say two or three interactions with a junior doctor will tell me their knowledge. Their ability to assimilate information, the right information, and it's quite obvious the ones who do not. There is no overall picture for me. It's like they are checklisting questions, but they do not know what to do with the information. They are not collating it.
0: We now move on to looking at how surgicals see things. A surgical way of seeing privileged surgical practice by focusing on the functional outcomes of surgery, rather than the scarring or disfigurement associated with surgical intervention.
1: This woman has a lovely stoma for us to look at.
0: A surgical way of seeing marginalised delicacy or embarrassment about bodies, odours, discharges.
1: Nobody squeamish? We're all clinicians here and we're not afraid of bodies.
0: These two quotes come from field note observations. We'll now contrast that with how things are seen by internal medicine doctors. An internal medicine way of seeing privileged clear-sightedness and gestalt in the context of complex patient presentations.
1: This man was sent in by his GP with what he thought was a lower respiratory tract infection. However, when I talked to him, it became clear that his problem was not a cough, but shortness of breath, particularly at night. He needed a lot more pillows and found it very hard to lie flat. Now, you will never really get a clearer picture or a clearer history than that of paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea.
0: And this was a field note of a consultant talking to his team at the patient's bedside. An internal medicine way of seeing privileged the ability to identify salience in a mass of patient historical and investigative detail. We'll now move on to look at how surgeons talk in the context of surgical teams and surgical culture. Surgical talk was unadorned, pragmatic language that conveyed identification with a surgical perspective. For example, a surgical resident figures a surgical way of narrating a case.
1: She had a big ovarian cyst... When we were trying to remove it, it burst, scattering crap all over the abdomen.
0: And this was again a field note from observing a resident talking about a recent case. Surgeons use hero disaster and deliverance narratives to position themselves as capable.
1: She came to us with an abdominal fistula. She was shedding raw feces all over her abdominal wall and it was getting very excoriated. We decided to have a go at fixing this. We went in and eight hours later we closed up. A few days later, a new fistula opened above the old one. However, this is a lot less painful and a lot less problematic than the old one.
0: And again, this was a field note from um, a resident describing a recent case at a coffee meeting. Um, now we're going to look at how physicians talk in their own company and in their own cultures. Physicians talk foregrounded precision, logic and coherence to present compelling and satisfying abstract models of patient cases for, for a physician audience.
1: You know if someone is capable. There are different ways in which people present cases, for example. So you come in to do a post-call ward round and somebody says, this patient came in and they presented with shortness of breath and they had a cough and this is the X-ray. Or, this patient came in with an exacerbation of COPD and we have done the following and this is the chest X-ray. You know from their way of managing things.
0: So this is a consultant in a post-hoc interview describing how he could recognise whether people were, as he said, at the races or not, in terms of talking like and acting like a physician. We now contrast um, another value weight of being, which is being prudent in surgical and medical cultures. So, looking at it from a surgical perspective, being prudent, like a surgeon, meant navigating the tension between caution and action. For example, a surgical resident self-authors himself as a prudent surgeon when discussing therapeutic options with the patient.
1: I think you have a hernia there. These are very common things that happen after major surgery like you've had. There are weaknesses in the belly wall and sometimes the gut pushes through like this. Yours has a wide neck and it is quite small. I do not think it's going to get into any trouble. Surgery would mean opening up your belly again and putting in gauze-like stuff to hold it together. I don't think you want any more surgery, do you?
0: And this was a transcript from a video of a resident talking to a patient in and outpatients. If we contrast that with how prudence is presented in internal medicine, we see the following. Being prudent, like an internal medicine physician, meant being reflexive and circumspect in relation to extant ideas, as well as new information or data. For example, an internal medicine physician figured internal medicine prudence as follows.
1: There are many ways to skin a cat and medicine will make a liar of you because you do not know the right answers. It's not a science. So much of it is how the story is told and whether you have the ability to go back and readdress what you did on the first day. Was it the right thing to do and are you prepared to change your plan?
0: And this was taken from a consultant post interview following a period of time of observation of his work. Lastly, we're going to contrast how two important attributes are positioned in medicine and in surgery, that is being resilient as a surgeon and being self-directed as a physician. So being resilient was highly valued in surgical team culture. Surgical resilience meant being capable of normalising post-operative complications, justifying actions and attributing poor outcomes to factors other than the self.
1: Complications happen, they just happen. And I feel that you cannot get too bothered by it, because if you get too bothered by it, the next patient is affected. You process it, leave it in that room, and you move on. I have had to go away and pretend nothing has happened.
0: And that was an interview with a resident following a period of observation. Being resilient as a surgical trainee meant deflecting reputational threat by choosing to interpret critical comments that they might receive from supervisors as coaching interventions rather than attacks on their personal capabilities. On the other hand, internal medicine doctors tended to value being self-directed. Being self-directed was highly valued in internal medicine team culture. Being a self-directed learner meant observing and absorbing supervisors' practice and being motivated to learn for oneself. An internal medicine emphasis on self-directedness favoured a modelling approach to clinical education as opposed to the more coaching-orientated approach that was prevalent and observed in surgery. Here, an internal medicine consultant figures the modelling teaching approach of internal medicine.
1: You lead by example and you hope that people will watch what you do, and if you do it well, that they will derive a positive experience from it. I do not think doctors need to be spoon-fed. You're relying upon self-directed learning.
0: And that is from a, an exit consultant interview following a period of observation. That is the end of Table 2. We now move on to look at identity work in formal educational events in medicine and surgery. We start with surgical ground rounds. Surgical Grand Rounds were educational events in which each week a pre-selected surgical team narrated interesting or challenging cases from the previous month to a critical audience of fellow surgeons and trainees. The Surgical Grand Rounds game required a resident to figure his or her surgical team as capable by confidently presenting cases in an intense conference environment members of the presenting team were subjected to pointed and at times aggressive questions from members of the audience during surgical case presentations questions were expressed in ways that positioned questioners as capable while putting the presenting team on the on the defensive
1: the staging criteria used for prostatic cancer are very outdated compared to those we use in breast cancer and why are you using still using those trans faecal biopsies, they have a serious infection rate.
0: And this was taken from field notes um, from a surgical case conference, Grand Rounds, um, in which the lead surgeon was subjecting the presenting surgeons to some uh, rather aggressive questioning. Surgeons subjected audience members to rapid and challenging question strategies that often carried considerable risk of reputational damage.
1: Okay, what's going on here? Come on everyone, it's obvious. Is anyone going to have a go?
0: This was again taken from field notes. This was from a case conference uh, involving both undergraduates and postgraduate trainees. Surgeons authored the combative and challenging behaviors characteristic of surgical grand rounds as an appropriate way of preparing future surgeons to think on their feet.
1: You could make an argument that a nice, relaxed environment is conducive to, to good education, but we are responsible for preparing them for professional activity and professional activity is a battleground. Every moment of every day, they're going to be faced with challenges. So, what I try to do is to get them thinking surgically whilst being challenged.
0: And this was a postdoc consultant surgical interview, um, justifying in many ways the rather uh, intimidating environment that he and others uh, conveyed in their in their case conference presentations. So, if we contrast that with internal medicine case conferences, then. Medical case conferences were a weekly education event in which the ON or internal medicine team nominated a resident to present interesting cases that they had managed in the previous few months. The climate of these conferences was more formulaic and discursive than in surgical grand rounds. For example, junior residents always presented cases using a standardized structure.
1: She presented a 57-year-old patient with aspergillosis. She outlined the Presenting Complaint, the Past History, the Medical and Surgical Histories, the Systems Review and the Medication List.
0: This is a direct um, uh, quote of what happened uh, from Observational Field Notes. Unlike Surgical Grand Rounds, the presentation was not interrupted by anyone in the audience until the Senior Physician Convener invited questions or comments. Whereas the conference environment was considerably less pressurised than surgical grand rounds, questions from supervisors could still be perceived as posing a threat to residents' reputations. Residents frequently responded to questions by positioning themselves as learners, rather than as capable physicians, um, and this is an, ex- an excerpt from an observational field note.
1: The convener summarised the case and then asked residents in the audience for their ideas about a differential diagnosis. Junior residents answered in low-volume voices and employed an interrogative upturn of pitch at the end of their sentences to indicate their responses were questions rather than statements in response to the convener's questions.
0: Consultants and supervisors did most of the talking in internal medicine case conferences, sharing perspectives in back-and-forth exchanges while residents listened. And again, here is a direct observational field note.
1: The conversation jumped to and fro between the consultants who discussed the management of Aspergillosis. They cited statistics and facts from sources of evidence and used experimental narratives to make their points. The junior doctors took a largely passive role as expert knowledge was talked into a space over their heads by consultants engaging in a field of evidential pinball.
0: Senior clinicians position themselves as knowledgeable and clear-sighted users of evidence employing language that appeared to marginalise the messiness and complexity of the medical practice that we observed in both hospitals. Informal identity work in teacher and learner interactions. Learners and supervisors use set-piece performances to figure their practices and author their identities. Surgical set-pieces were performances of surgical craft and theatre. Whereas in internal medicine, the typical set-piece performance was the case presentation. So looking at surgery first, and learning in theatre in particular. Uh, here is a, a resident interview citation.
1: You wouldn't really be thinking right as a surgeon if you didn't jump at the opportunity to spend more time in theatre. It's much better than ward rounds and outpatients. Any registrar worth his salt would want to spend more time in here.
0: Figuring oneself as a surgeon and becoming accepted meant mastering surgical craft in theatre.
1: It's pressurised when you first meet a new consultant because you could do something stupid, like you may not be able to cut a stitch because the scissors are blunt. There's a big gulf between talking the talk and walking the walk, so there's usually a lot of anxiety going into a new job to demonstrate that you're already able to do something.
0: To practice their craft Trainees needed to present themselves as surgically capable under the gaze of the supervisor. In this example, a surgical resident talks about how he makes a positive impression um, in front of his master surgeon.
1: It's exactly like an old-fashioned apprentice and master kind of thing. There are set pieces that you're expected to be able to do before you can move in. In the first sense, they will watch you do something simple like tie a knot or hold an instrument. That kind of stuff would tip them off as to whether you're technically proficient. As an assistant anticipating the next move, you know, focusing the camera correctly, Mm -hmm. showing them you're interested, focus on the operation. If you understand what the next step is, these are all hints.
0: Surgical teachers typically used both verbal and physical means of communication to author themselves as coaches. Their talk indicated what trainees should do, see, and be careful about. The following expert excerpt is taken from a f- direct observation field note.
1: Can you see the vessels there? Now I want to keep that one because it's important but that one we can zap. I think it's important because I think it looks after this bit of gut that we're going to keep so we need to be careful of it. I don't care about bleeding from the mucosa, I care about bleeding from the mesentery.
0: In addition to providing verbal and physical guidance, surgeons' authored a cultural imperative to keep moving on. This meant that surgical trainees had to practice their skills under considerable time pressure, as one observation um, showed.
1: Come on, cut, 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 let's get on with it.
0: So this was a field note in which a surgeon was trying to hurry his trainee on, and this was a regular feature of training in theatre. Unlike internists, surgeons gave regular feedback. During surgical procedures, this feedback was often direct and unambiguous.
1: He's very hard on the criticism, but it is all constructive when you're operating.
0: And this was a resident reflecting on the critical type feedback that he usually got in theatre. Surgical teachers also communicated implicit feedback by, for example, taking over control of a procedure from a resident. And here a consultant talks about how he manages that.
1: I don't explicitly say anything when I'm taking over. What a surgical trainee will understand by that is that we've come to an area where I'm not happy for him to proceed directly himself. I'm not entirely happy with his understanding of the basis of what we are doing and therefore I'll take over. It's unsaid, but that's always the way it's been in surgical training.
0: Becoming a surgeon in theatre was about recognising and reproducing the practices of surgical supervisors while authoring oneself as a surgeon and learning to talk knowledgeably in expected ways. And here, for example, a surgical resident talks about a recent admission.
1: I have to admit, I saw Mr. X's way of putting in the umbilical port. I did not particularly like it, but I do not actually know any other way. I've seen other people do different ways that look a lot simpler. But while I work with Mr. X, I'll do it his way. Everybody says to you, while you're working with me, I want you to do it this way. When you come to your own appointment, you pick up the bits that you like from everybody, you do it your way.
0: Now we move to internal medicine where case presentation was in many ways a critical showpiece practice. So case presentation provided a critical opportunity to self-author as a capable physician in internal medicine. Here, a resident talks about the importance of case presentation.
1: You just want to give the salient points to the consultant and see that he's happy to go along with the plan. He doesn't need the full story. All he needs is a couple of bullet points and what we are doing. We're just selling him the story. If I'm presenting the story to the consultant I think I'm looking to see to he agree with me. Has he any more to add? I'm not looking for validation or a pat on the back.
0: Internal medicine trainees figure themselves as physicians by comparing salient details that they chose to emphasize in their case presentation to those selected by their consultant supervisors.
1: If you admit someone and then you go through it with the consultant And if they pick up on things that you missed, it's a really good learning experience. And if they picked out the same things, it's really satisfying that you think that you've done it properly.
0: So here, a junior resident then is reflecting on how he presents a case and then listens to what the consultant says. And it is that alignment or lack of alignment uh, that drives his learning. Senior team members listened for coherence and the inclusion of detail that allowed them to make sense of cases in junior doctor's case presentations. So here a resident again talks about that experience.
1: I have listened to poor referrals I think, would you get to the point and what is the real issue here? You don't want to start off with this man had a double bypass, he had a heart attack and he's on Flusomide. You want to say he's got chest pain and then I'm thinking is he a high risk or a low risk patient? your wheels are turning, and when you hear he's had a bypass, you think, well, okay, how is his ECG? Whereas, if you don't really know what the problem is and you're hearing the other information first, you can't follow it. You need to see how they arrived at the impression. Once you can see how they arrived at their conclusion, it is usually fine.
0: Thus, case presentation in internal medicine was about self-authoring as capable of identifying salient detail, anticipating questions in listeners' minds, and assembling a coherent abstract representation of the patient's presentation which made clear the rationale for conclusions or actions. Rather than coach learners thinking, internal medicine supervisors often sought to interactively align residents' case presentation to their own thinking and habits. In this example, a video um, transcript is presented in which a resident is presenting a case in outpatients to his consultant
1: she's a 56 year old lady
0: is she a new patient
1: uh she's newish uh, she was last seen in 2010.
0: she's a refer- referral then is it asthma then has she ever smoked
1: uh she smoked uh she had non-hodgkins t-cell lymphoma in 2000 treated with chop and radiation
0: to where her chest
1: uh, chest yeah uh, her ct in 2014 showed some upper lobe changes that they thought were associated with radiation therapy but in her most recent chest X-ray, there do not appear to be any apical changes. She feels her symptoms started after she got radiation treatment.
0: So in this example, the consultant interrupts quite a bit and is really directing the presentation towards the way he wants it thought about, the case to be presented. Um, So teachers in internal medicine position themselves as models more than as coaches during informal interactions with learners. For example, by giving verbal demonstrations, termed cognitive broadcasts, of their thinking for their trainees. By articulating what they could see and were thinking, they model the practice of internal medicine. So in this case, a consultant explains how he does that.
1: You just think out loud about something. You show your way of reasoning. It's so much more interesting than just reading a book and following procedure. I think that hearing how someone is reasoning is very interesting.
0: Consultant monologues were the predominant form of teaching in internal medicine teams. In this example, um, the field note um, describes how a consultant um, talks about a chest X-ray with undergraduate and graduate learners.
1: The consultant asks to see the patient's chest X-ray. When the X-ray appears on the screen, he talks about what he sees. He says that he thinks there are bilateral pleural effusions on the chest X-ray because there's a loss of the normal diaphragmatic shadow and yet the left heart heart border is clearly visible. He then checks that his team understands the task that needs to be carried out.
0: Discussion. Our principal finding was that the specialty-specific practices of surgery and internal medicine determined what was taught, how it was taught and what was learned. The roles of clinical teacher and learner were particular to each speciality and culturally anchored. Teachers and learners negotiated their identities within cultural worlds characterized by specialty-specific ways of knowing, talking, and being. These observations align strongly with current descriptions of workplace learning, where identity formation is characterized as a negotiation between learners' engagement with the affordances of the workplace and its demands of them. Our work suggests that clinical teams should be conceptualized as cultural worlds in which agency is negotiated dialectically in relation to the socio-historic norms and expectations of the team, as well as the parent specialties. Learning in specialty-specific cultural worlds not only limits learners' agency, but promotes the reproduction of culturally sanctioned practices and dispositions. Becoming a surgeon or an internist is therefore situated in a contested space between the demands of workplace contexts and specialty cultures, and the aptitudes and aspirations of the individual learners. Contextual threats to learner-centeredness and the perception of dominant culturally scripted teaching practices and identities represent important challenges for faculty developers who wish to address the deficiencies of clinical education. There is good evidence, for example, that learners who can exercise agency to harness the available dialogue and practices in working or learning contexts can greatly enhance their learning experiences. Our work suggests that the solutions to the acknowledged problems of clinical education need to be founded on well-informed constructions of the particular discourses that apply in specialty-specific cultural worlds. Becoming a specialist represents a form of specialty identity work shaped by participation in clinical teams and the alignment of self with the historical values, practices and traditions of a particular discipline. Identity work describes how individuals create, claim, discard and negotiate social and role identities in relation to others in social contexts. In this study, we found that learners in formal and informal clinical learning contexts used strategies of narrative positioning and self-authoring to discursively make identity claims as surgeons and internal medicine physicians. They did so in relation to discipline-specific cultural backdrops of valued ways of knowing, talking and so forth that were embedded in the everyday working practices of internal medicine physicians and surgeons. Explorations of clinical education have highlighted the centrality of work in defining the curriculum of clinical education in postgraduate medical education. Given that, this, given that it is the work that defines what is learned and how it is learned, Morris and Swanick suggest that clinical supervisees should select and structure meaningful work opportunities for trainees articulate key features of the workplace hidden curriculum and provide working and learning environments that enable belonging this study and our previous work suggests that these clinical supervisor roles were for the most part not actualized in the service-driven clinical workplaces that we observed these deficiencies could be addressed through faculty development but only if faculty developers are prepared to acknowledge the cultural specificity of how clinical education is enacted in different specialties and the particularities of the cultural worlds where teaching, learning and working occur. Recommendations for faculty development. Given the profoundly situated nature of the curriculum of the workplace and the particularities of teaching and learning in different specialties, faculty developers could greatly enhance their effectiveness by shifting emphasis from attempts to improve clinical education using solutions derived from ethical or educational orthodoxy towards facilitating change founded on contextual understandings. To achieve this faculty developers need to work with clinical teachers using action research approaches for example to observe and make sense of the workplace settings and teaching practices that they hope to change. Faculty developers should collaborate with clinicians to develop contextual curriculums that are customised for the politics and realities of the places where clinicians work. Video reflexive ethnography, or VRE, has been shown to be very effective in approach in helping clinicians to appreciate cultural, taken for granted aspects of context and practice. Technologies such as VRE could be used to resource participatory action research designs whereby clinicians collaborate directly in building understanding of workplace contexts and therefore solutions to the educational problems that pertain there. Limitations. Although these findings could help design faculty development programs that are better suited to the real politique of workplace education, there are some limitations to their applicability. Whereas the study was strengthened by gathering data from two clinical teams in each of two separate teaching hospitals, features such as team structure, hierarchy and training curriculums were particular to one country. To increase the transferability of the findings, we used Figured World's as a strong analytical framework and treated sites where we conducted the research and specialities of surgery and internal medicine as instances of clinical workplace learning. Transferability was assured further by the composition of the research team. The authors came from three different countries, the Netherlands, Ireland and the United Kingdom. They all experienced in international medical education and the team includes an internal medicine physician, a psychologist and a general practitioner whose specialty training was very different from either surgery or internal medicine. Nonetheless, given the importance of understanding the work and the workplaces and the contextual curriculums that shape clinical education, we recommend further research in other countries and different specialties. In keeping with the traditions of social anthropology, A single observer undertook the fieldwork in this study. To minimize bias, he kept a reflexive diary and corroborated his observations using on the hoof, informal interviews with participants, and formal exit interviews at the end of each observation period. The single observer effect was further mitigated by close cooperation enriched by the different perspectives of the three researchers. Conclusions. In clinical education, Teacher and learner identity and the associated practices of teaching and learning are all shaped by, and contingent on, the socio-cultural contexts in which clinical learning is situated. Participation in social structures, such as specialty-specific clinical teams, informs not only what is learned, but how it is learned. Clinical education is not, as it is sometimes portrayed, a linear process of acquiring knowledge but is instead a complex process of becoming, through mutual engagement, in in situationally specific curriculums of the workplace. Our work suggests that faculty development should move away from its current focus on expert-led credentialing approaches to fix clinical education and consider instead a more facilitative approach founded on the constructing shared understandings of workplace curriculums with the people who work there the clinicians. To close, I would like to acknowledge all of the clinicians and hospitals who participated in this research, and we have no conflict of interest in this research.